Welcome back again to BadQuaker.com podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, November 19th, 2012. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number 232. I'm not going to put a whole lot of, uh, you know, normally in the beginning of the podcast, I talk about the forum or whatever. I'm not going to do that today because I have a lot of information to cram into this podcast um, I do want to quote Sam Adams to begin this. I, I've quoted him a couple times in the last few podcasts, but I want to quote this one more time at least. It does not require a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen to set brush fires in people's minds. Now, today uh, I want to begin a series, and it'll probably get interrupted a couple times, and I'm not sure how many will be in the series, but I want to talk about war. And the reason that I'm doing this series and the reason I'm doing it now is because between now and December 7th, I want to get all the way through this series, and I want to finish talking about December 7th, 1941, and I want to talk about uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and how you've been lied to your whole life about that. But in order to get to that, in order to get to a point of where uh, we can mutually understand what it is that I'm going to say on that podcast, we need to first lay some groundwork. And both you, the listener, and I need to uh, have a full understanding of just how much lies are taught in American schools and uh, other schools as well. But mostly the American, um, you know, the state-owned uh, and sponsored schools, the government schools in America, the lies that they've taught about the American wars. And I want to start today with uh, with two things, and I'm hoping I can. I, I hope I can get it all in. Um, the first part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about um, the, the the progressive takeover, the the takeover of the United States government by the progressives around 1900. And uh, assuming I can get to it, I want to talk about the War of 1812 because that's um, you know that was the first declared uh, act of aggression on part on the part of the United States government. That was the first time the War of 1812 was the first time. Um, that officially the United States government had declared war on anybody, and it um, it was entirely a war of aggression on the part of the United States. It was not all the lies that you've been told in school uh, lead you to believe that somehow the War of 1812 was a defensive act on the part of the U.S. government. When I, if uh, hopefully I can get through it today, uh, if time permits, I'll I'll, uh, I'll show you that's a lie taught by government schools. But first, I want to talk about the progressives and why you've been told these lies and how thoroughly. Uh, that they've been indoctrinated into the American people. Okay, so around 1900, in those days, the evil terrorists of the day were the anarchists. Everything imaginable was blamed on them. Newspapers of the day were filled with outlandish stories written to sell more newspapers. And in those days, newspapers were notorious for telling lies and embellishments. 
And the police in America, uh, for them, the anarchists were both a threat and an opportunity. And I'll go into that a little bit in a minute. But it was the same with, uh, with government itself. Um, for any weak government anywhere in the world, uh, or any up-and-coming political group, anarchists provided both a threat and an opportunity for them. Now, uh, if you if you recall, I've done a series on I've done actually two series on police and the and the uh, the police state and how police developed uh, in the U.S. Uh, coming out of they you know they were uh, gangs they were Irish gangs in the big cities in in eastern United States. And that developed into modern police. And I'm not going to go into that a lot today. Uh, I will say, let me back up just a little bit. My references for what I'm going to tell you today uh, come entirely from these sources. From the book Gangs of New York. And there will be a link in today's notes uh, where you can get that in Amazon. It's a really good book. It's worth buying. Um, next, uh, the Indianapolis Monetary Convention. This is an article by Murray Rothbard, and it's uh, an older article. It's over at lewrockwell.com, and there will be a link in today's show notes for that. And a wonderful book that I, I just wish everybody would get a hand, their hands on this book. It's called A Century of War, Lincoln, Wilson, and Roosevelt by John Dennison. And I'm pronouncing it uh, the way John Dennison pronounces Roosevelt is Roosevelt. Uh, I've 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 heard so many of his lectures and I've I've listened to so many of him, uh, times of him reading these articles that when I read the book I have to I I can't help myself I slow down and I read at John Dennison's speed the speed that he speaks at because he speaks in this deep southern like a gentleman's uh, a southern gentleman's accent and he sleeps he speaks very slowly and intently and so every time I try to read that book I end up reading it very slowly in John Denson's uh, uh, voice but anyway so that's that's my sources for today now in reference to the police and uh, their their birth as you know initially gangs um, again, that comes from the book Gangs of New York and research that I've done on the Internet with Wikipedia. You can go to badquaker.com in the upper, upper right-hand side. Just put in the word police and, and hit that search, and you can uh, come up with the two different series that I've done on that already. So, uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove that. That's already been taken care of. So the police needed a justification for themselves because in around 1900, late 1890s, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, justification for having police outside of, you know, the government needing uh, local muscle to keep the uh, the local elections in control. Other than that, there really wasn't a lot of public need for police. So the police saw the anarchists as a wonderful opportunity to create a need for police. So between the newspapers making money off the hype of the uh, you know the threat of the anarchists and the police uh, infiltrate well so-called infiltrating these groups in all actuality many of the troops were made up many of these um, anarchist groups were made up entirely of police uh, you know very much the way some of the radical groups today are made up of uh, undercover FBI uh, informatives you know sometimes even informing on each other They're, the the methods that the FBI is using right now uh, to create a terrorist threat are exactly the same methods that local police were using around 1900 and it's the same way with um, you know with weak governments that needed to justify their their existence they could uh, they could use the so-called anarchist threat 
to scare their populations into, you know, depending on them more to protect them from the evil anarchists. And the same was true with um, with weak political groups. Uh, this was mostly throughout Europe. They would rely on the threat of anarchists to to ca- cause people to run to them and support their cause because they were, you know, strong against these anarchists or whatever. So we have that going on in around 1900. And, and there are even, you know, there's... Um, there's a bunch of old uh, uh, silent movies from the early 1900s that portray, uh, you know, the, the main topic of the movie is the evil anarchist uh, hiding behind every tree, planting bombs everywhere that they can. And this was all propaganda, and it was, you know, it sold newspapers, it sold movies, and it kept, uh, the, it, it made a way for the progressives to gain more and more power right in that time frame. Now, I, I do have to say that anarchist thought in those days was in an infantile stage. It was underdeveloped, uh, self-contradictory, not thought out very well at all. The, mov- the movement itself was based largely on emotions and confusion, and the whole thing was riddled with a bunch of socialists that hadn't really thought things through. So I'm not really defending the anarchists of the day, and some of them were very violent people, but a lot of stuff was blamed on the anarchists that had nothing to do with the anarchists. Uh, I remember being taught in, in school that uh, you know Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of um, Austria, was murdered by anarchists. Well, that's that's just a lie. He was murdered by the Black Hand, and the Black Hand was a militant group. Uh, they were they were anything but anarchists. But as a child, I was always taught that in school that that uh, Franz Ferdinand was killed by anarchists, and that's what started World War One. It's just not true. It's a lie. Well, the same thing happened in 1901. The American president was assassinated by an anarchist, a crazed lone gunman. But this guy, um, he, had, he had been uh, desperately reaching out to prominent anarchists, and they wouldn't have anything to do with him. They would just shun him, ignore him, uh, you know, refuse to answer his letters, that kind of thing, refuse to meet with him. Um, as much as a year before the murder of McKinley, the... Uh, um, American anarchist newspapers were circulating this warning, and I'll read it for you. The attention of the comrades is called to another spy. He is a well-dressed, oh, I'm sorry, he is well-dressed of medium height, rather narrow shoulders, blonde and about 25 years of age. Up to the present, he has made his appearance in Chicago and Cleveland. In the former place, he remains... He remained but for a short time while in Cleveland he disappeared when the comrades had had confirmed themselves of his identity and were on the point of exposing him. His demeanor is of the usual sort, pretending to be greatly interested in our cause, asking for names or soliciting aid for acts of contemplated violence. If this same individual makes his appearance elsewhere, the comrades are warned in advance and can act accordingly. So now that, that was a, an actual warning that was circulating through anarchist newspapers uh, up to a year before the assassination of McKinley because they knew that this guy was a fake and they knew he was just some crazy nut that was just trying to gain uh, you know, some kind of support for himself and make a name for himself. And he was going to use violence to do it. Well, that's the exact kind of people that these, uh, you know, these government and these police groups will get a hold of and pump their head full of ideas, and then they go and they do their uh, their bidding for them. Now, I'm I'm saying this. I have no love for McKinley, the president that was assassinated. He was a warmonger, 
He engaged in aggressive wars, in land grabs. You think of what he did with Hawaii, and I'll get into this in a later podcast when I talk about his aggressive war with Spain. But he just snatched Hawaii, which was a, which was a free and independent nation, and had a, uh, a monarchy in place. And he just went in and took it because he could, because he had the muscle of the United States Navy. Uh, he set up fake treaties and mislead, with misleading translations to justify the ethnic cleansing and the slaughtering of Muslims in the Philippines. So I'm not saying anything positive about McKinley, but there was one thing about McKinley. And in many ways, this was his death sentence. Uh, but I'm not going to get into a lot of that today. I'm just passing right by this. But there was one flaw in McKinley that, that caused his death sentence, and that was that he was a hard money advocate. He wanted to remain with gold and silver uh, as as backing the currency, and he was and he stood in the way of both the greenbackers and the central bankers that both wanted to uh, to grab power. So, um, you know, so we have the uh, oh, and if you want to read more about that, uh, the Indian the Indianapolis Monetary Convention by Murray Rothbard, and again, I'll have a link in today's show notes. Uh, really covers very well the scheming and the behind-the-scenes uh, maneuvering that was taking place right around that time. The power struggle between the hard-money Republicans that, that were in power and the uh, the greenbackers, the Democrat greenbackers that desperately wanted power, and then the uh, the central bankers that the were progressives that came in and very wisely um, used both sides and pretended to present compromises, and in doing so, just took control of the government. And so, uh, so again, we have this lone gunman changing the course of American history. Boy, that's never happened before, right? Nine years later, nine years after this lone gunman, the Federal Reserve was formed. Three more years, and the Fed uh, controlled the money supply, just like that. Boom. On uh, on December 23rd, 1913, the U.S. government became a fascist government. Italy followed with central banking issuing its fiat currency in the, in the early 1920s, but it was doing nothing but copying what had already happened in the U.S. The U.S. became a fascist government in 1913. And with one bullet, the progressives were in control of the office of the presidency in 1901 and the Republican Party that had held control of Washington, D.C. since 1861. Now, for, for the last 100 years, no matter the name that was associated with it, no matter the party, no matter what, the, uh, no matter what empty promises were given in campaigns, the progressives have held 100% of the power in Washington, D.C. since 1901. There isn't one name, one president, one speaker of the House that isn't associated in one way or the other. And at least their acts, if you, don't, if you look past their word and you look at what they actually did, the progressives have been entirely control of Washington, D.C. since 1901. Now, around that time in 1900, the number one agenda for many progressives was public education. Beginning about 1900, a generation of American children were indoctrinated with a false history. Those children grew up and some became teachers. They believed and taught the lies of the progressives to another generation. For 111 years, these progressives have lied and passed, and passed these lies from teacher to student, who then becomes the teacher. It takes 14 years to, do, to indoctrinate and train a teacher. Well, we're in the eighth generation of brainwashing in America. 
and it's worse in some countries. Germany had forced government schools 30 years before America did. Bismarck was forcing state indoctrination on German children before Hitler was even born. Now think about war. We know that war is the health of the state, right? Okay, well, think back to any particular war. Think back to Lincoln's wars, uh, war, rather. Well, no wars. Lincoln uh, really kicked up the war against the uh, American Indians, but he also uh, aggressively per- pursued war against the southern states. Um, and you can read about that in John Denson's book, A Century of War, Lincoln, Wilson, and Roosevelt. Um, but let's look past these historical lies and find the true intent of these aggressors. Would anybody on the ground ever go to war if they knew the real reason for war? Governments always lie to people so that they can start wars. And the more time that goes by, the thinner those lies look. Think specifically of the lies that were used to start wars. And how do you think the process is any different today? It's not. It's exactly the same. So now when I come back from the break, I'm going to get into the War of 1812, and we're going to look at the lies that justified the War of 1812. We're going to look at at what school children are taught, and we're going to look at the actual history of, of what really happened to lead up to the War of 1812 and what the result was, what, what came out the other end of 1812. What, uh, how did the War of 1812 serve an actual purpose, and who did it serve? Stick with me. I'll be right back. I'd like to talk to you about Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. The Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics presented in an easy, convenient way. There are video files and audio files you can download. You can participate in discussions online in the discussion boards. And there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators where you can directly interact with the instructors. Now, who is this for? It's for anyone who realizes that they didn't get the real story in government-approved schools. It's also great for homeschoolers and unschoolers. Join Tom Woods and his team, and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge, real knowledge in a usable form. At Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, you can get all this for only $99 a year. Now, that's less than the cost of one movie DVD a month. This gets you access to absolutely everything on their site, All the courses, plus additional courses that will be added later, the discussion forums, the live sessions, everything. So how do you do this? You go to badquaker.com. You click on the banner for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. By using that link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you, and you'll help badquaker.com. Thank you very much. Okay, let's jump back into this now. So I'm talking about the War of 1812 and the lies that justified the War of 1812. So here's one of the lies. The British were pressing American sailors into forced service, or basically slavery. Now, that's true. It was happening. But that was happening, you know, uh, before the, uh, the American War of Independence. It was happening all the way through the War of Independence. And it was happening consistently and without end all the way, uh, all the way through, you know, 18, uh, 1780s, 1790s, 1800, 1805. Why, if that was the reason for the war... Then why didn't we go to war? Why didn't the U.S. go to war with Britain in 1790 or 1795? Why why wait till 1812? So there's and there's another problem with uh, with this as an excuse for war. You see, the, the the actual situation was that most navies in the world pressed uh, pressed.
impressed their their grunt part of their crew. They would uh, they just pull into any port that they could get away with, and a team of thugs would just you know get I mean, usually Marines. I'm sorry, but that's one of the purposes of the Marines early uh, the early purposes of the Marines. Um, they would go into a port town. It didn't matter really what country it was. Go into the port town and just snatch up uh, able-bodied seamen and drag them out. You know, if they resisted, they'd thump them in the head and drag them out anyway. This was, uh, you know, if you've ever heard of the phrase to Shanghai someone, well, it wasn't only the practice of navies. It was the practice of even merchant ships would do this. They would have private uh, marines that would go into a town, into a port town, and they would find sailors that weren't particularly attached to a boat, and they would press them into service. So, so I'm not trying to justify this practice, but I'm just saying that that was not a, res- a, a, a legitimate reason to go to war over in 1812. It was pretty much the standard practice for, for uh, navies in the day. Um, also, most of the pressing of American sailors into forced service was actually where American privateers would be captured by British naval ships. You see, the American privateers from, uh, you know, right after the War of Independence all the way up until the War of 1812, um, American privateers uh, just fed off the British. The, England was at war with France and with Spain during this time. And uh, and so their their navy was really tied up in trying to deal with the French and the Spanish, and so the navy couldn't the English navy couldn't protect the uh, the English merchants uh, as well as it should have perhaps, and so the American privateers, um, you know, they took advantage of this situation, and so a good portion, if not all, of the people being pressed into service by the uh, British Navy were privateers that were caught on the high seas. And they would also confiscate... (laughs) I have to control my English there because I have some words that I mispronounce regularly, so I'm trying to teach myself better. Confiscate. Uh, But the British Navy were seizing American privateering ships as well. But um, but that you know that's that's because a privateer in one country is a pirate in another country. So, and I'll get into that more in a minute. The, one of the other excuses was the uh, the so-called Chesapeake Leonard affair. This was in 1807, and a lot of people use that as an excuse, and they said America has been humiliated. We can't stand this humiliation. And the newspapers were full of declarations of how terrible it was that America would be humiliated like this. But, you know, this is mostly a myth. Uh, a lot of newspaper hype, it was, a, it was mostly the whole affair, so-called affair, was, uh, was twisted way out of proportion in order to sell newspapers in American cities. What actually happened was a commander of an American uh, naval ship had, um, had taken on board... Um, British deserters, n- uh, you know, naval personnel that were in actively in the war fighting, uh, you know, for England, English citizens that were fighting for England on English ships against the French and and the uh, Spanish, and they had gone AWOL or they had, you know, uh, deserted the English Navy and they were hiding out, uh, working on an American ship, and uh, there was an English ship that caught word of where these were, and so the English ship approached and and challenged the uh, American ship, and the American ship immediately uh, surrendered. And remember, we were not at war. The U.S. was not at war with England. But here's an American Navy commander taking on board British 
deserters and protecting them. And so the British ship, uh, you know, stopped the American ship, took back the sailors and actually tried them. And I think one of them was hung and I think the other two, I can't remember now, but, but anyway, um, it was entirely a legitimate thing from the, from the view of the British. And, uh, and there was actually an inquiry into this and the commander lost his command over this. So it was his fault. According to the U S Navy, it was the commander, the U.S. commander's fault, not the English fault. So to use the Chesapeake-Leonard affair as an excuse, the so-called humiliation of America, that was entirely uh, newspaper hype and it was not a reason for the war. Um, now, next, a lot of people, and this is including, uh, I, think, um, I think Andrew Jackson pushed this pretty heavily. Uh, it was this idea that, oh no, maybe it was Jefferson that said this, that this that the War of 1812 was a second war of independence. This was a very popular thing. The, the indication was that, you know, if, if we hadn't had the War of 1812, the British would have just taken us back over. We had to fight the British in 1812. Otherwise, it, it, the, the, the War of Independence would have meant nothing. Well, that's just an outright lie. The British had no in- interest whatsoever in retaking the U.S. The Brit, you know, so oftentimes a Americans get an overinflated view of themselves. In 1800, 1812, 1776, the United, the you know what the colonies, what became the United States, was really, really a minor thing to Britain. It was, it was a very small matter. If you look at the population of the entire United States in 1800 or in 1810, and compare that to the population of London. Then you get, you start to get a, a perspective of how small of a deal it was that the to to Britain that the English that the uh, that these colonies had broke away. It really was not that big of a deal. So the British had no intention whatsoever of retaking America, and you know, so so the idea that we needed a second war of independence was absolute hogwash. There was there's no truth to that whatsoever, and even if it was Jefferson that was saying it, it's still a lie. Hey, guess what? Jefferson lied more than once. Okay, so the other uh, the, uh, another excuse was that the British supplied goods to the American Indian Confederacy of the Old Northwest. So there's this inference that, that the British were undermining the U.S.'s authority by, uh, by, by supplying uh, you know, to our enemies these, uh, these nasty Indians in, this, uh, in the Old Northwest. Well, first off, that was their land. That was the Indian land. The Old Northwest is, we're talking about Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, even up in, into Michigan, that whole area. That, that was already Indian land, and there was already essentially a confederation of Indian nations there. They had everything that it took to be considered legitimate nations. And the U.S. was in the process of stealing their lands in an undeclared war against them. And this was entirely an aggressive war on the part of the U.S., and uh, the accusation that Great Britain was somehow funneling, you know, goods and and uh, so forth, arming them and, and everything, this is just it's an it's a distortion of reality. Now, um, Canadians had been trapping and trading in that area, uh, you know, going back for a hundred years or more, and um, and that's what was going on. There were there were Canadian trappers, there were Canadian people that were trading, there were Canadian trading posts throughout Canada, and the Indians, uh, the Indians in in the Indian Confederacy, 
actively and peaceably traded with the Canadians. Now, there was nobody in the British government that was feeding the, the, the Indians, you know, arms or supplies or whatever for the purpose of undermining the U.S. authority or for the purpose of, of trying to, you know, get arms into the hands of Indians. It was simply the normal trade that had always gone on between the Canadians and the, and the Indians in that area. Um, the fact that the U.S. was attempting to aggress on the Indians had nothing to do with that trade that had always gone on. And even if this accusation were true, even if it were true that Great Britain was, uh, in essence, uh, acting in, uh, in bad faith against the United States by supplying the Indians with arms, even if that was true, well, um, guess what? That's absolutely no different than what the U.S. government was doing and what American uh, merchants were doing when they were trading peaceably with the French and with the Spanish during the same time frame that England was at war with the French. You see, uh, America had a real close relationship with uh, 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 Napoleon Bonaparte. And the U both the U.S. government and U.S. merchants made a lot of money supporting the French government and trading with the French government. So if, if, uh, if the British are guilty because Canadian traders and, and trappers um, you know, had commerce with the Indians, then the U.S. is just as guilty for what it was doing to supply uh, Napoleon Bonaparte with armament and, and supplies during its war with Great Britain. So, you, you know, you can't have it both ways. You, you either treat, um, you either say it's wrong and it's an, an act of aggression to trade with somebody who's fighting in a situation like that, or it's not. But you can't have it, you can't say, well, it's, it's war when Britain trades with the Indians, but it's okay when, when the U.S. trades with France. You, you can't have it both ways like that. You know, there's no way to explain this in a logical manner where you can justify one and condemn the other. It just doesn't make any sense. So then what were the actual reasons for war? Well, it's the same as always, money and power. That's the reason for the War of 1812. There were people who stood to make a lot of money, and there were people who stood to push the U.S. government and gain a tremendous amount of power. Now, let's talk about money first. So, I, I mentioned before about American privateers, right? The, the American privateers had been taking advantage of the war between England and France. And this was going from about 1803 to about 1814. And during that time, American privateers were looting uh, English merchant ships. Uh, almost at will, because so much of the British Navy was tied up fighting both the English and the, the Spanish. These are the days of, uh, you know, Horatio Nelson and the great sea battles that really, uh, that really marked the, the, the peak of British naval power. And, and during this time, because of these privateers, great amounts of wealth were pouring into Boston and New York because most of these privateers were, were based either in Boston or New York to a lesser degree in um, um, Baltimore and some of the other American cities. Well, uh, New Orleans, certainly. But here's, what, here's where the, the flaw is. When you think about these privateers, or even if you want to call them uh, pirates, when you think about these people, don't think of Johnny Depp type or Errol Flynn type uh, privateers or pirates or whatever. Um, think more like Blackwater, Halliburton, General Dynamics. Think like that, because what we're talking about here is incorporated, uh, you know, ventures. 
it, 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 we're not talking about independent pirates out there on the on the seas taking chances and doing all these romantic things. What we're actually talking about is corporations licensed by the U.S. government that were um, that were making a living robbing from the from the English merchants and bringing that those vast sums of wealth, bringing that into the American ports and then selling it to the American people, or in some cases, actually selling it back to Europe. So, uh, you know, like I said, don't, don't think of uh, Johnny Depp or Errol Flynn when you're thinking about these privateers. Think about Blackwater, Halliburton, and General Dynamics. Now, in 1805, the, there was the Battle of Trafalgar, and that's when uh, Nelson was killed. And the British Navy at that battle crushed the Spanish and the French, and it secured control of the oceans. But even at that, um, you know, the British still kind of had their hands full with, with continuing to fight the, the, uh, mostly the French by that point. But there were still some remnants of, uh, of Spanish power as well. But in 1805, it did free up, with the Battle of Trafalgar, it did free up a portion of the British Navy to come over, you know, into, uh, uh, into the uh, uh, western part of the Atlantic and begin uh, protecting some of the British merchant ships. And, and this was a real blow to Washington, D.C., and it was a real blow to American privateering because, you see, you have to remember, these, uh, these privateers, when they came back with their bounty that they had looted from the English merchants, they, uh, they paid actual taxes on that to Washington, D.C. There, um, there were actual uh, you know, port taxes and so forth like this that were written into the Constitution that uh, anything that was brought in in shipping, the U.S. government got a cut of it. So, in essence, the U.S. government, based in Washington, D.C., was making money, lots of money, off of this piracy. And so, when you know elements of the British Navy became freed up after uh, Trafalgar, then uh, and they and they and the British Navy started, you know, uh, cracking down on these pirates the American government actually started losing large amounts of money in this deal. Now, during the Napoleonic Wars of Aggression, the U.S. government, along with the U.S. banking interests and U.S. merchants, were supporting France and supplying them with both war materials and, uh, and other supplies. And this was, again, this was during their war with Britain. This is what I talked about a minute ago. Britain routinely uh, stopped these ships and seized the cargo in the same way that British have stopped ships that supplied goods to, like, Germany during both world wars and the way the U.S. government enforces trade embargoes against countries like Iran today and the way they enforced a trade embargo against Iraq for many years. If Britain was wrong then, then D.C. is wrong now because Britain was doing the same thing that the U.S. is doing now with countries like Iran. If Britain provoked the War of 1812, then logic dictates that the U.S. provoked Iraq and is now provoking Iran. After the Battle of Trafalgar, when the British ramped up their efforts, uh, you know, to to stop the um, to stop both the uh, merchants from supplying Napoleon and to stop all these pirates, during that time, there was a lot of hate thrown toward Britain. Uh, because of those actions, but if you really think about it, who was the aggressor? Who was being the aggressor? Who was, you know, who was getting a cut uh, from these pirates to go out and rob from merchants that were simply because they were British merchants? 
So we have to ask yourself those questions if you if you really want to take a serious look at uh, at what the reasons were for the War of eighteen twelve. And so now that was money. All of that that I just said was about the money in the War of eighteen twelve. When I come back from the break, we're going to talk about the power and how power was an influence on the War of eighteen twelve. Stick with me. I'll be right back. Did you know author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Okay, now, uh, before the break, we were talking about um, money and how money was one of the reasons for the War of 1812. And now I want to talk about power. And specifically, what I want to talk about is American expansionism. But, of course, you know, as you expand the, the reach of an empire, you also expand its power. Um, the U.S. was actively invading American Indian land while making and breaking treaties with those same Indian nations. And this, you know, uh, we, we know well about this happening up in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, and so forth. But really, the United States government started doing this, uh, it, well, what, in Washington's time? When, you know, Washington had a lot to gain by invading the old Northwest? And it continued right up into the War of 1812 as the U.S. attempted to, to steal, basically. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. Like I say, the, the Indian nations were, uh, in every way, had a legitimate land uh, rights to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, that whole area. There, you can't legitimately make any kind of claim that the U.S. had any authority or any right to go in and take it, other than the fact that they, you know, they felt they could, and they felt that they uh, could make money off of it and increase the power. So that was really, you know, I, I don't know how you could make any kind of argument that there was any legitimate claim to to that to the great to the old Northwest, but um, but the U.S. was aggressing there anyway. Now. There was also, at the same time frame, there was a U.S. attempt to annex Canada. Uh, and they actively invaded Canada on July 12, 1812. And this was the first actual act of the War of 1812. And now, a lot of American kids are never taught this. A lot of Canadian kids are taught this and understand it. But, but I, in years in, in American schools, no teacher ever told me, these words never came out of their mouth, that the U.S. actively invaded Canada more than once, and the Canadians were able to push them back. No teacher ever told me that the U.S. started the War of 1812 by invading and attempting to annex Canada. 
It's just not taught in American schools. But that is the actual facts. There were elements of the U.S. government, and there were people, it was a popular thing among a lot of, not, not the majority, but a lot of people in the U.S. felt that Canada should be part of the U.S., owned by the U.S. government. And so there was, you know, this was not hidden back in those days. So there was an active attempt to annex Canada through the force of invasion. And like I said, this was the first action of the War of 1812. The invasion failed, as did the second invasion of Canada. During most of the War of 1812, more than half of the British forces in North America were made up of Canadian militia, volunteers defending their homes. American children are not taught that. American children are taught that the War of 1812 was strictly a matter of, uh, you know, British regulars over here trying to invade us and take the country. This is entirely wrong. The British forces were on the defensive. They were not on the offensive. Thomas Jefferson uh, actually said at one point that conquering Canada would be a matter of marching. That's his words. It's a matter of marching. In other words, um, Thomas Jefferson was saying that uh, this is how hard it's going to be to invade Canada. We walk up there and take it. That's basically what he was saying. The, the U.S. in no way, the U.S. government, did not expect the British to seriously engage the U.S. over Canada. They expected it to be a cakewalk. The, uh, and to a large extent, that's exactly how, British, uh, how the British government looked at it. They really didn't have all that great of an interest in militarily holding on to Canada. But the people of Canada had no intention whatsoever of allowing them, the United States government to just march up there and take it. So, so this was not so much a war against Britain. Britain was wrapped up in its own war that was serious and was a serious threat to the uh, to its you know to its power in uh, in Europe that was going on with Napoleon so this little side issue to the British meant very little who the only people it was really important to was the Canadians because they were the ones getting invaded and so they were defending their homes they were defending their land this was entirely a war of aggression on the part of the US now also, at the same time, Canada wasn't the only conquest that was planned. In, uh, in 1812, uh, Washington, D.C.'s buddy, Napoleon, invaded Russia. And the plotters in D.C. thought that Napoleon would win. And they planned to capture Russian territories on the Pacific coast all the way south to the San Francisco Bay. They expected that, um, that Russia would be so weakened from Napoleon's t attack in the west that Russia would... Uh, fail to protect their interests in North America. So there was this intent to uh, militarily take Russia's North American holdings uh, if Napoleon was successful. And that came very close to happening in uh, starting in California. But uh, Napoleon was, of course, a total failure in his attack in Russia. And so that changed the plans of the plotters in D.C., and at the same time, Spain was dramatically weakened by this war with England. And so there was, uh, there was very vocally, there was this intent to dr drive Spanish interests out of North America. And uh, essentially what, what these people wanted was they wanted the U.S. to be, you know, all the way from way up in northern Canada all the way to the Isthmus of, Pan of Panama. There was, it was vocalized that this was the plan 
to bring the, the new, the fledgling United States from coast to coast and from the north of Canada all the way down to, uh, to the Isthmus of Panama. This was already uh, the plan, and it was talked about openly in, uh, in the early 1800s before the War of 1812. So the War of 1812 was an American war of aggression timed with Napoleonic expansion in Europe with the purpose of securing the entire North American continent squarely in the hands of Washington, D.C. That was the entire intent and purpose of the War of 1812. This part of it, this is the power end of it. It was to take the whole North American continent. Now I want to touch on the lies that, uh, that still stand today in American schools. American school children are taught, when they're taught anything at all about the War of 1812, that the War of 1812 was a display of America's power on the sea. Well, this is a lie. Um, if you think about the USS Constitution, this is a, sh a ship that still exists today, and you can go and look at it there. I believe it's in Boston Harbor. The USS Constitution was a 44-gun frigate. It's a single-deck ship. The British uh, uh, ship of the line would have had three gun decks and between 100 and 124 guns. And these are heavy cannon. They're not the light cannons that are on the, uh, on the Constitution. No sane frigate captain would have intentionally brought his ship under the guns of a British uh, ship of the line. The USS Constitution's greatest achievement was that it captured two frigates, a 16-gun schooner, uh, a sixth-rate a sixth rate post ship, and a 20-gun sloop. That was, that was the, the great accomplishments of the USS Constitution. The USS Constitution never faced a British ship of the line. Keep in mind, the British were busy. They had a real war to fight. This thing over there in North America was just a little, uh, mostly a merchant issue. It really didn't. It didn't really enter into the the bigger issue at hand uh, for the for the British when they were dealing with Napoleon. In eighteen twelve, uh, England had the world's largest navy with over six hundred cruisers in commission, and then some smaller support vessels. Uh, the The Royal Navy's North America squ Squadron that was based in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, and, and this is what basically took the brunt of the American War. It numbered one older, undersized ship of the line, seven frigates, nine sloops and brigs, and five schooners. Now, that was the entire um, uh, American, you know, the British, uh, British Navy's North American squadron. Now, by contrast, the U.S. Navy, in its entirety at the time, comprised of eight frigates, 14 sloops and brigs, and, uh, and not a single ship of the line. The U.S. did not have one single ship of the line that could take on a proper British ship. So, so we wouldn't. We didn't. We, we were a very minor, uh, you know, almost a speck on the ocean compared to the British. The British strategy during the War of 1812 was to protect their own merchant shipping to and from uh, the West Indies. Now, the exception to the strategy was the occasions when they uh, used the British Navy to deliver troops during the invasion of Washington, D.C. And the, and the failed invasion of Baltimore. Another lie that American school children are taught is that the U.S. won the War of 1812, or at least they tied. Now, this is the way they say that's This is the way it's taught, that the U.S. won the War of 1812, or at least they tied it, right? Well, the U.S. Um, the US did win its war of aggression against the American Indian Confederacy. 
however, it was soundly defeated in Canada. Uh, they could not control, the U.S. could not control its own coastal waters and didn't dare challenge the British Navy in an open confrontation. The U.S. capital was taken, burned, and looted, while American troops helplessly fled the British advances. U.S. forces did successfully defend Baltimore only because the British were incapable of landing their troops. Had they moved on Baltimore by land, uh, it would have joined D.C. in flames. The U.S. failed in all of its original goals, with the exception of the defeat of the, of the Indian nations. The British were fighting a defensive war and had nothing to gain except peace. So when the Treaty of, uh, of Ghent came along, the treaty stated all occupied territories to be, to be returned, the pre-war boundary between Canada and the U.S. to be restored. So none of the so-called grievances justifying the war were even mentioned in the treaty. In the Treaty of Ghent, uh, British gave a, a slight nod to the fact that some New England states were opposed to the war and threatened secession over it. So the treaty granted some fishing rights to, the, to British waters. But in a, in, a, in a very real sense, handing the fishing rights to some of these northern states in British waters was kind of like... Um, kind of like a, a rich person giving an old suit to an unemployed person who's seeking a job. It was practically an act of charity um, because British, you know, the British did appreciate that, uh, that these northern states were uh, almost seceded from the Union in order to try to stop this war of aggression on the part of uh, Washington, D.C. Now, here's another thing to think about. British losses in the War of 1812 uh, about 1,600 killed in action and about uh, 3,600 wounded. American losses were 2,200 and uh, and wounded about 4,500. So uh, they were all, you know almost double the American casualty rate. So no, the U.S. did not win this war of aggression. They failed to achieve their stated goals. They failed to achieve uh, their secondary goals of capturing North, you know, the whole continent of North America. Plus, they suffered significantly higher casualty rates. Therefore, I conclude that the War of 1812 was lost by the U.S. and was won mostly by Canada, because really it was a war between the U.S. and Canada, and Canada won. Now, I'm sorry if that, if that you know, pricks American pride, but facts are facts, and these things are not hard to come up with. Everything that I just went over... You can find for yourself in Wikipedia. Now, there's always one other thing that's thrown out by Americans, and that is that the U.S. Uh, soundly defeated the British at the, at the Battle of New Orleans. But that battle was fought in 1815, a year after the Treaty of Ghent. It had absolutely no effect one way or the other on the war. It was fought for no purpose whatsoever, and it accomplished nothing. And keep in mind, it was mostly Canadians fighting, not British had British commanders and so forth, but it was basically uh, Canadians. Now, here's the other thing to keep in mind, too. Um, the, uh, Eng the American forces at, at the Battle of New Orleans were largely uh, pirates. Think, and, and my purpose in bringing this up once again, my purpose in talking about the War of 1812, is not to, you know... Um, say anything bad about America. I'm not talking about anything bad about America. I'm not p 
putting down, I'm not hating America. I'm talking about the U.S. government that lies to its people to justify its wars. And like I said, if the actual people, if the actual soldiers, if the actual, you know, the guys who have to go out there and risk their lives, if they ever actually understood the truth of why they're fighting and why these wars have to take place, if they understood the truth of it, they would never lift their rifle. They would never put their boots on and walk out there into it. They just wouldn't do it. The, the only way the government can get these wars uh, fought is to lie to people. So I'm not blaming America, the American people. I'm blaming the American government. And there's a real distinction between these two things. And you can't fall into the neocon uh, way of thinking that causes you to think that if any criticism of the government is criticism of America. No, we're talking about two different things here. This is like if a mosquito is in the process of biting you. You have no problem slapping the mosquito because the, the mosquito is a parasite that's stealing from you. Well, that's what the U.S. government is. The U.S. government is nothing but a parasite that lives off the American people. And at some point in time, it's going to get squished. But in the meantime, what I'm telling you is not disparaging to the American people. It is, it is an accusation against the Washington, D.C. government. Now consider everything that you've been told about the War of 1812, and then consider the things that I've said today in this podcast. And now think about this. I can do the same, the same thing I just did with the War of 1812. I can do the same thing and expose the lies used to justify Lincoln's War of Aggression. I could, use this, I could do the same thing and talk about the U.S. Wars of Aggression against Spain and Mexico. And during this series, I may do that. I may go war by war and pick out each one of them and show how the U.S. was the aggressor in each of these cases. The only difference with the War of 1812 and some of these others is that the U.S. government lost the War of 1812 and the U.S. government won their other adventures. But all this happened um, before the warmongering progressives took power. You remember I talked about them in the first part of the podcast. See, so all of this war of, wars of aggression, Mexican War, the Spanish War, Lincoln's War, the War of 1812, the slaughter of Indians, the stealing of their lands, all that happened before the progressives took power. And once they had power in 1901 and secured the unlimited funding of the Federal Reserve a few years later, then they, they marched America from one act of aggression to the other while engaging in unneeded world wars and death on a scale the world has never known. And when I say unneeded world wars, don't worry, I'll support that. You keep coming back and listening to the other podcasts in this series and you'll see what I mean. There was no need for any American involvement in the First World War, and had there been no American involvement in the First World War, there would have been no Second World War. And I'll get into that on the, in the episode relating to that. And so I hope at this point I've established that the U.S. government, in conjunction with government schools and government-approved private schools, has systematically distorted and lied about its reasons for and results of this war, the War of 1812. And it shouldn't be a shock to you when you hear the next part of this uh, series in this, uh, of the podcasts in this series. It shouldn't be a shock to you when you hear how you've been lied to about Pearl Harbor and about, how, and about the reasons for World War II and about how the economic impact 
uh, of World War II, how it shook the American people and how, it, how damaging uh, World War II was to us economically. And it shouldn't be a shock to you to learn the true reason that the state loves war and that the U.S. government loves war. Now, thanks for sticking with me today, uh, and be sure and listen to the other um, podcasts in this series so that you can, so that you can hear the whole rounded-out uh, truth behind America's wars of aggression upon our neighbors and around the world. Thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission.